love um, to have you serve, you can sign up on our For the City page on our website. All right, we are going to turn to the scriptures today. So if you would open your Bibles or your digital Bibles, <laughs> and we are going to be in Acts 17, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this blabberer want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him into the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some who of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus, the... Uh, Aragopite, <laughs> and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kate. You know, the reason I really have people do that for me is so I don't have to mispronounce any of the difficult words. <laughs> she did a great job. Um, it's hard, all those Greek and Hebrew stuff that's in there. So uh, we're continuing in our series this week called... Uh, What's it called? 
journeying through the book of Acts, our origin story. <laughs> it's been that kind of weekend, guys. We're doing good. Our origin story journeying through the book of Acts. And the whole point of us being in the book of Acts for the summer is to look back on the, the origin of our history as the church and ask the question, what does it look like to become that church again? Um, because I believe that if the church can become all that God has called it to be, that the church is still the best hope for the world. Now, the book of Acts is full of evangelism, right? Lots of evangelism. And what is evangelism? It's basically just the sharing of the gospel and preaching the message of Jesus. And if you're anything like me, doesn't even the word evangelism kind of make you uncomfortable? Now, thank you. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, now, I've been a part of some evangelistic experiences that weren't horrible, um, people wanting to receive prayer and seemingly grateful for our efforts. But I've also been a part of some kind of cringy and uncomfortable moments when it comes to like street evangelism. And when I hear the word evangelism, I conjure up a, examples of people talking to Jesus uh, when no one was asking them to talk about Jesus uh, on the street or like on the corner. They've got the big banners and they're threatening hellfire and brimstone. Maybe it, we even associate the term evangelicals with uh, certain political ideologies or ways of living that come to mind. Wouldn't it be, bless you, wouldn't it be nice if evangelism was easy? I think there are some people out there who are really good at striking up conversations with random strangers and getting into really deep conversations quickly about Jesus. I am not one of those people. Um, there's this aspect of Acts that makes me really uncomfortable, and it's all the evangelism that it seems to be calling us to. I know these are all wonderful things you want to hear from your pastor, but, and many of you might think, well, Lane, you talk about Jesus all the time. Yeah, it's true, but I do that here. Like, you expect me to talk about Jesus, whether you want to be here or not, right? Whether or not you chose to be here of your own accord, I think most of you did. No one came in here looking, thought it was a Walgreens, right? Like, oh, wow pick up the prescriptions at the coffee. No, you know that this was a church. And so me talking about Jesus makes sense. But talking about Jesus out there, that can feel next to impossible, right? Why is it that sharing what Jesus means to us is so difficult and awkward, right? Wouldn't it be nice to become the kind of church that we see in Acts where it's simple, right? where Jesus' followers are sharing the good news about Jesus and they're seeing communities and, 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 and individuals transformed. Some of us get executed and martyred for our faith. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful? That was a joke. <laughs> Some of you were like, what is he saying? Um, no, the point is, like, it wasn't always easy to share the gospel back then, but it was simple, right? It was pure, it seemed pure. Like Jesus' followers shared the good news of Jesus, and I did one of two things. One, it would harden the hearts of the proud and sometimes, you know, heap punishment on us like martyrdom and execution. But other times, it would transform the hearts of the humble. And when one encounters Jesus, I think that when they really do encounter Jesus for real, you either really completely deeply love him or you completely reject him. I don't think there's any middle ground. I don't think that you feel just like wish-washy about Jesus if you really do meet him. But the reality is, we live in a context which the ch in which the church finds itself in Acts was very different from the context that we find ourselves in today. What if we found ourselves in a culture that is largely indifferent to Jesus? Or only encountered him in misrepresented ways, and they've been hurt by that misrepresentation? What if everyone and anyone 
that you might want to introduce to Jesus is already under the impression that they know who he is? What if the culture that you share Jesus with has already heard the word Jesus to such a degree that you would have a really hard time finding anyone who hadn't heard of him? See, I suppose for us, there's a bit more work to do. Not only are we, the church, tasked with introducing the world to Jesus, we're also burdened with the unfortunate reality and responsibility to undo the misconceptions and misrepresentations of Jesus to those who think they already know who he is. And I think when a lot of people are rejecting who they think is Jesus, they're actually just rejecting the church. Now, in our context, cultural baggage and divisiveness and agenda-driven rhetoric make conversations about Jesus really loaded and sometimes really unfruitful. For some, the word Jesus is characterized by a certain political party or a voting pattern or a kind of subculture, particular religious radio stations or certain kind of music or movies, good or bad, right? I think in people's minds, Christianity has less to do with Jesus and more to do with how we become like church people. We live in a culture that is defined by sociologists as a post-Christian culture. And that makes things like evangelism really tricky. But here's the good news. I believe that through the Spirit, we can learn to live these integrated lives where we love uh, the same way with our actions that we do with the words that we speak. I think that through the Spirit, we have everything that we need to make a correct introduction to Jesus, to represent in a way that is allowing him to let his reputation speak for himself. I think our biggest task as evangelists is to simply get out of the way and to let Jesus do what he wants to do in people's lives. So today, we're going to unpack the story a bit of Paul evangelizing in Athens. Um, But before we do that, can we pray? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would guide my words today, that I would speak from your wisdom and your love and your compassion, from your justice and your truth. And Lord, I pray that we would be receptive to what you have to say. Holy Spirit, we invite you here to speak and to move in ways that we cannot without you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Paul is on his second of three missionary journeys. He's going around, he's spreading the news of this resurrected Messiah, Jesus, with anyone that is going to listen to him. And some people are coming to believe this good news of Christ, and others are wanting to kill him. That's usually the two things that want to happen when he does this. Not everyone has been receiving him well everywhere that he goes. He's just gotten out of Thessalonica, and the people of Thessalonica have hired ruffians. Ruffians? That's what the Bible says. They hired ruffians, thugs, poison ivy, quicksand. Um, That was for those of you who have seen Tangled. Look, I tried to give you a sports reference a couple weeks ago, and you didn't laugh, so this is where we find ourselves, back to Disney. Um, So the Thessalonians, they have hired a brute squad. I am the brute squad. Uh, They've hired them. Okay, I'm done. Done with the references. They've hired them to drag Paul before the Romans, the Roman authorities, and to accuse him of instigating rebellion, right? Because what's the good news that Paul is spreading? That Christ is resurrected and that he's the king of the universe. And to someone who, to people who worship and adore Caesar, this is problematic. So it's getting a lot of unwanted attention for Paul. So the church is going to try to get him out and to get him back to Jerusalem where they think they can keep him safe. So they send him to Athens to wait until they can arrange travel for him. And that's the passage where Kate just read. This is where this takes place. Now, Athens, we know, is a former Greek city. 
It was conquered by the Romans, but it still maintains this rich history and identity of philosophy and great intellect. Um, There were a lot of great thinkers like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates that would debate here in this city. They would debate philosophy. But Paul is troubled as he passes time walking through the city. He sees that the city is full of all of these idols, all of these statues that are dedicated to false gods. Now, the way pagan gods were regarded in ancient times, they were kind of like these petty toddlers who had really amazing powers. So you did everything you did to worship them in order to appease them. You wanted to stay their wrath, and you wanted to get their blessings on the earth. And if anything went wrong, it's because you ticked a god off for not ticking the right boxes, right? And um, there was a god for everything. There were even unnamed gods, like the one Paul references here, or the one Luke references here, for stuff just in case. Like, just in case I missed anything, let's worship this unnamed god just so we don't incur the wrath of someone we haven't thought of yet. And there was this massive plague that happened uh, previously that killed a lot of people in this community. And that's when they started erecting these statues of these unknown gods. Because they're like, hey, that plague was probably because we ticked off the wrong god. So let's make sure that we cover our bases here. It's paranoia, right? They just really want to make sure all the gods are happy with them. So Paul is teaching in the synagogue, where he usually does, wherever he goes. But there happen to be some philosophers there who are questioning what Paul is teaching about the resurrection. So there are, there are a few philosophies that are floating around at this, but there are two really big ones. There are the Stoics and there are the Epicureans. Okay, so the Stoics, we're going to do a little entrance into philosophy here. The Stoics, their main thing was that the, the, the ultimate good was to transcend the body, to rise above carnal desires and to attain kind of this higher plane of consciousness where I'm, I'm disconnected from my emotions and I'm higher in my thinking. Uh, And eventually, in death, you join the disembodied existence of the great beyond. Maybe you get reincarnated, maybe you don't. It was kind of wish-washy after that. But basically, you are more than your body. You are above your body. And then the Epicureans, they kind of have an opposite approach. They embrace the body. You're supposed to cater to its desires. You're supposed to indulge your longings because once the body is dead, you're gone. And so anything that you want here on this earth is because there's a reason for it, and you better indulge while you have the opportunity. And here comes Paul, who's preaching a gospel that violates both of these philosophies. Paul is preaching resurrection. We'll come back to why this is such a a big deal. But basically, he's saying that you're not supposed to rise above your body. You're not supposed to completely indulge in your body. Actually, you're supposed to have a body that is redeemed. He's not preaching a gospel of escapism like the Stoics. He's not teaching carnal incarnation like the Epicureans. He's preaching something that is completely different. That your body is good and yet broken and needs to be redeemed. And that's why the resurrection is coming for us. Now these philosophers, they invite Paul to the Areopagus to have a a formal debate with him and to test his reason before kind of the council of thinkers. It's probably fine. But there was probably undoubtedly some anxious anticipation because this was where Socrates was sentenced to death a little over 400 years earlier for his philosophies. And so there might have been some tension here. He's thinking, why have they brought me here? But for Paul, this was probably par for the course. He was used to getting his life threatened. He debates them, and many of them are unconvinced, but there are some that believed what Paul was saying, and they joined the church. And there was uh, among them a prominent philosopher named Dionysius. And in this conversation, I think that there is a lot for us to learn today. I think for us, there are three lessons that we can learn about how to evangelize. 
in this text, okay? Three lessons about how to evangelize. Paul was preaching the resurrection, which broke the categories of their philosophies. So the first thing is, the way of Jesus doesn't align with the ways of dominant culture. The way of Jesus doesn't align with the ways of dominant culture. So resurrection confounds the philosophies of Athens, right? One who needs to see discipline and tame the body in order to obtain a higher form of consciousness. And another that believes that the, the, the desires in the body are always there for a reason and that we should indulge them whenever we can. And then here comes the Trinity with this story of bodies created by God with all of the desires and impulses in it and declares that they are good. But then sin enters the world and distorts those desires and makes them impure and creates ways for humans to harm one another. And so the hope of humanity is not to deny the body or to indulge the body, but to redeem it. To redeem it. So Paul breaks both of their categories. There's two major ways of thinking, and he brings them to a kingdom way of thinking. You know, growing up, I, uh, I used to align with a particular political party. I won't tell you which one, but wouldn't you like to know? Um, and I used to say things like, I don't know how you could be a Christian and vote for blank. If Jesus were still earthside, he would definitely be a blank. Are you uncomfortable yet? <laughs> feel the tension in the room? You can feel the YouTube comments even materializing as I speak, right? <laughs> But as I've grown in my relationship with God and my study of the scriptures, the more I believe that Christians are invited to be highly engaged and invested in politics, but always nonpartisan, because the kingdom of heaven is not left or right, but above. Now, before you tune me out, if you're upset about that, I, I can understand why. Before you tune me out, um, hear this. If you would disagree, if you disagree with me and you are passionate about your political party, I want you to know that you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's nothing about what we think about politics that will ever threaten that unity for us. I will always embrace you as my dearest brother and sister in Christ. And I'm really grateful that you call Red Hills your church because unity in Christ is what we're after. And families have disagreements all the time, right? Thanksgiving can be kind of an awkward table for a lot of us, right? But it doesn't mean that we're not family. And guess what? This right here, the bread and the cup, that bonds us closer than blood. That bonds us closer than DNA. So you and I can disagree about politics. doesn't threaten our unity. doesn't threaten what Christ has done for all of us. And here's the thing. I don't need you to agree with me all the time. I could be wrong about stuff. Let me rephrase that. I am wrong about some stuff. <laughs> I am. And when me and Jesus meet one day, he's going to be like, sit down. We're going to learn. <laughs> right? That's going to happen. So as we muddle through this together, let's just extend trust to one another, extend grace to another, one another, and contend for unity above ideology. Yeah? I, I, I like to think about Amy Simple McPherson. So there's a, there's a podcast I'm going to recommend to you guys. It's called Same Jesus. Right now, Foursquare is celebrating 100 years of being Foursquare. 1923, someone named Amy Simple McPherson founded our denomination, which is pretty cool. And this podcast is kind of doing a deep dive into its origins and celebrating what makes Foursquare distinct. And I think it's a really, really good podcast. It's being really well done. 
um, AJ Swoboda, who was taught here many times before. He's a part of that podcast, and so you might enjoy it. But it's interesting, because on the front of Angela's Temple, which was the big church that Amy founded in L.A., where they were feeding the poor and the hungry and seeing all these miraculous healings take place, on the front of that building, you see a sign that says this, dedicated unto the cause of interdenominational and worldwide evangelism, which in 1923 was radical. It was. Remember, this is before the civil rights movement. This is before a lot of uh, even uh, women in our society were given a lot of equal rights. This was a really big deal. And when she talks about interdenominational evangelism, denominations were divided not just by theological lines, but by ethnic lines. Back then, your denomination was what your ethnicity was. So Amy was having these revival meetings and having uh, intercultural experiences. She was one of the first ladies in the South to ever have an integrated, racially integrated revival meeting. This was a really big deal. And what the Holy Spirit was about was not uh, her agenda, but about his. And she was always dedicated to this too. To the idea that the good news of Christ transcends our ideologies, transcends our agendas, so whether or not she agreed with someone on every single theological point was beside the matter. She wanted people to know about Jesus. And what I think we can learn from is this. Whenever we center anything other than Jesus, we will find ourselves within a camp or an ideology of our culture. When we center Jesus, we discover a way of life that transcends and confounds ideologies of our dominant culture. There's kind of this idea and like, this is idea floating around right now, that if I go to a progressive church, that they're going to highlight the social gospel, that they want to feed the poor and, and clothe, uh, clothe the poor and feed the hungry and, and do social things in our community. Or you can go to a conservative church and they're going to have a more fundamentalist gospel, which is a personal redemption and holiness and repentance and all of that. And I just want to reject that. <laughs> I don't think there is a social gospel or a fundamentalist gospel. I just think there's the gospel. <laughs> there's the gospel, which invites us into our life where, yes, I am fully redeemed in my soul and called to repentance and personal holiness. And because of that, it should transform the community around me for the name of Jesus. Yeah. That a social gospel and a personal gospel, they're not, they're not different. That's just what Jesus does to human beings. So that's the first lesson. Uh, that the way of Jesus does not align with the ways of dominant culture. The second is this. The fingerprints of Jesus are everywhere. The fingerprints of Jesus are everywhere. So there's this passage here where he says, God set humanity in motion so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each and every one of us. There's this um, concept present here that theologians call general revelation. There's this idea that things like God speaking in the scriptures, Jesus coming to the earth, these are, these are special, examples of special revelation, that God is revealing himself in a specific and special way, directed ways. But then general revelation is this idea that God has revealed himself throughout all of creation, and that his fingerprints are everywhere, and then if you discover truth anywhere, you discover the truth of God, even if it's not in whole, it's in part. That's the idea here. C.S. Lewis, he wrote this. He said, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. 
Men feel sexual desire. If he wrote this today, he'd say men and women feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I love that. The Athenians, like all humans everywhere, found a desire beyond themselves, something that transcended what they could see with their eyes. Paul was illuminating that this great beyond had a name, Jesus. As Peter and the apostles would explain that the Hebrew scriptures are all pointing to the Messiah, Paul goes to the Athenians and their current state of revelation, what they had always discovered to be true about the, about the world and about themselves, and he filled in the gaps. And he says, Jesus is the answer even here. Notice that Paul quotes their own literature. This guy was smart. This guy knew a lot. He had read all the things that the Athenians had read, and he quotes their own poetry at them to show that actually the truth that they're longing for, it's in Jesus. We often, we feel the pressure of sharing Jesus, and we make the assumption that the person we're condescending to knows nothing of God. But if they've experienced compassion, if they've ever seen beauty, if they've ever been incensed by injustice, the handiwork of God has been present in their life, even if they don't know it. Sometimes all it needs from those who have been reactivated in Christ like us is just a little light to illuminate the fullness of truth in their life, that the goodness and the justice and the mercy that they've experienced for themselves, that that divine transcendent longing has a name. It's Jesus. Now, Paul laid the truth of the feet at those who would listen. Some received it, and others did not. And this is where I think it's important to remember the third point. Evangelism is making an introduction, not an argument. Evangelism is making an introduction, not an argument. Now, you might think, Lane, Paul is literally arguing throughout the entire passage, and you'd be right. But he only did so after he was invited to do so. Paul was just sharing in the synagogue where it makes sense to talk about God the Messiah, just like it makes sense for me to talk about Jesus here at a Christian church, right? There just happened to be some philosophers in the room, and they invited Paul to come and debate with them. Paul shared Jesus in his context. He did it on their terms. We have a missionary partner in Alaska, two missionary partners, Joel and Trish Buchanan, and uh, we just sent two teams there this summer, and we spent a lot of time working for him and making sure that um, they were well poised to continue to serve the community. And what Joel, so Joel, he's, uh, he's half Clinket, which is one of the indigenous nations there in Alaska, and he has been serving for years, I think over a decade. Is that right, Aaron? Over a decade. He's been serving this community there, trying to Give Jesus a good reputation. And he does a lot of selfless stuff around the community, painting schoolhouses and building stuff and, and clearing out foliage, which I've personally helped with. Um, fun stuff. Uh, he's done a lot of this. And a lot of people in the community, they'll ask him, Joel, like, why are you and the people from these churches that don't even live here, why are you doing this? And I love what Joel says. He says, so that one day you can give us an opportunity to tell you that Jesus loves you. That's why he's doing it. See, Joel is ministering to a group of people who have a really bad taste in their mouths 
when it comes to the word church or Christian. Because the church was responsible for some really horrible cultural atrocities in Alaska. And so Joel is working really hard. He's working overtime to earn back the trust of those whom he wants to share the love of Jesus with. And it would be inappropriate for Joel to just come in guns a-blazing, arguing about why they need to come to Jesus. That would be inappropriate. It wouldn't be warranted. We have to know our context. We have to know how and why and when it makes sense to share who Jesus is. Because it's always, it's always good to share about Jesus, but how we do it, that requires wisdom. That requires contextualization. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, I have become all things to all people so, uh, to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. We have to trust the sowing process. There's a lot of anxiety in me when it comes to evangelism. It's like, well, I have to share Jesus, and they have to accept him right there on the spot, or I've failed, and the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's just spin out pretty quickly, um, at least if you're me, in my mind. <laughs> um, and what's interesting is that you don't see an anxiety about Paul when he's doing this. He has like kind of a healthy anxiety, maybe, like a worry and a fervor. He wants people to know the way of Jesus, but he's not concerned with what happens after he faithfully shows up to what he's been asked to do. He sows the seed. And Jesus talks about this, the kingdom like it's seeds. And I think he does this on purpose, right? Because we know that when we share Jesus, there's different kinds of soil. Sometimes it's hardened. Sometimes they don't want to hear what we're saying. Sometimes it's soft and it seems to work for a while, but then they go back to their old ways because it gets choked out by some of the stuff in their life. There's lots of different seasons. It's not to, up to us to determine what the soil is like. We just keep sowing the seed. And we trust that even after season after season of sowing on hard dirt, maybe one day that dirt's going to be ready. And we don't concern ourselves with the rest. We make an introduction to Jesus in a way that we're poised to. And this is, this is really important too. So, so we need to share in a way that contextually makes sense to our lives, right? I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Which is fascinating, right? But like, you're like, well, what about Paul? He didn't keep on being a Pharisee. No, but Paul was a teacher and a philosopher already. And so he kept teaching, <laughs> and philosophizing. That's what he was good at. So he kept doing it. Not everyone in this room is going to go around doing what Paul was doing because not all of us are gifted like Paul, but only you are gifted like you. So what does it look like for you to share the gospel in your context? Listen, we live in a culture today where debate is no longer an arena for open discussion, civil discourse, and persuasion. It just doesn't exist. We're all way too defensive. We're all way too locked down. Debate is simply right now a way for us to identify other members of our tribe. Do they check the boxes? Do they have all the right rhetoric? Because then I know that I'm safe with them because they think the way that I do. That's what debate is right now. So how do we address this? How, how, how do we talk about bringing Jesus to our culture in a compelling way if this is the way that our culture reacts to evangelism and debate? Well, there's the religious way of going about it, and this is just being loud or proud right? Loud and proud about our faith. We're right. Everyone else is wrong. You guys better get on board. Get on the bus or get under the bus, right? That's kind of the religious spirit. And what this does is this assumes an adversarial posture. This assumes anyone that I'm meeting who doesn't know Jesus is my enemy until I make them not. Even if that's true, it's not a helpful strategy, right? Because Jesus 
turns that weapon away from his enemies. And he says, I'm going to love anyone who persecutes me, and I want you to do the same. So that strategy is not very helpful for us. Then there's kind of the worldly way of going about it, and that's just we assimilate whatever the world thinks. It doesn't matter. We can just kind of bring in whatever. Assumes that all of what the enemy is doing is benign and harmless, and that also is not true. The enemy is out to steal, kill, and destroy, and we need to be wise and mindful of that. What does the scripture say? Gentle as doves, wise as serpents, right? So I think the way of Jesus is not to be loud and proud and divisive and incendiary in our rhetoric. No, neither is it worldly just to assume that everyone's got good intentions all the time and we don't really need to push Jesus. It's, it's whatever. I think there's something in the middle here. I think this is dialogue. And dialogue assumes belonging. And it assumes that the person with whom I'm talking to maybe has a revelation of who God is already. And all I'm doing is making an introduction to Jesus. All I'm doing is bringing the light that I have and bringing it to their life. And this views all human beings as a harvest, not as enemies to be conquered, but the Lord's harvest, right? We look back on the day of Pentecost. This was the, the celebration of the harvest festival, right? Not the, not the harvest festival, but you know what I'm saying. The, the, um, maybe you don't know what I'm saying. Harvest, like bringing your first fruits to God. That was what Pentecost was. And so when 3,000 people came to know Jesus, this was a repre- representation of God harvesting people to himself, right? So this is what evangelism should be. What would it look like for us to assume that the fingerprints of Jesus are found everywhere and that our job is simply to bring the light that God's put in us and reveal it to others? Listen, I know that identifying my own tribe and wanting to just bunk down in debate, it can be really comforting because this is an anxious reaction to feeling like I'm persecuted or feeling like nobody likes me, feeling like everyone disagrees with me. But with us, our only camp, our only tribe is the way of Jesus. And we're not to be defensive, trying to protect our way of life. We're on the offensive, bringing the light of Jesus to people, highlighting his fingerprints in ways that he's already at work in their lives. I think the the good news for us is that we don't need to save the world. Jesus is saving it. Jesus is saving it. So we get to come alongside what he's doing and give him the credit. We get to bring what Jesus has done to transform us, to bless others, and then we get to get out of the way and allow Jesus' reputation to speak for himself. Because every good and perfect gift is from above, from the heavenly Father who does not change like shifting shadows. That's who God is. So if we can trust that, we can trust that simply being who we are in Christ is enough. So share the love of Jesus in your context. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to give you some time to reflect, to sit, and to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Again, I've said some things today (laughs) that might cause some wrestling in you, and I want you to know that's completely okay. And I'm not trying to debate you. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us because what God has to say about the text that we've wrestled with today ultimately matters more than what I've said. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fall on this place. We ask that as we sit now in silence and reflect on your word, that you would breathe truth to us. Lord, we breathe in your presence and we breathe out anxiety. Lord, we breathe in your truth and we breathe out false narratives and lies. Lord, we breathe in your hope and your goodness. 
and we breathe out despair and discouragement. Lord, as we breathe in and out, would we be filled with your spirit? Would you fill us, Holy Spirit, with your presence and power? We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.